0: G'day I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad clinical psychologist, Chris Mackey, and this is psych spiels and silver linings. All righty, Well, dad, we are so excited and I know dad, particularly you're excited for this podcast as I think Very much anyone so. we've done before, so. Today, we have Lisa Buxbaum on the podcast, who has developed an organization, Soaring Words, which is a not-for-profit organization devoted to inspiring children, families, adults, seniors, and healthcare professionals to take active roles in self-healing, and it has impacted over 500,000 people since the year 2000. Lisa is the author of the recently released book, Soaring into Strength, Love Transcends Pain, that we'll also discuss today. Lisa is an expert in positive psychology, completing the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania with Martin Seligman as one of her teachers. Who He's a good friend of the podcast. We have very much respect for Marty Seligman. She also has an MBA in marketing from Columbia University Graduate School of Business. Her other qualifications include a certificate in narrative medicine from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and a certificate from the American Institute for Mental Imagery. Lisa has presented at numerous scientific conferences including the international positive psychology association and has led professional development workshops at dozens of fortune 500 companies. Lisa has also been featured as an expert on numerous media platforms. She is the president elect of the international positive psychology associations, health and wellbeing division. And Lisa Mm -hmm. also serves on the board of the coincidence project in which dad, you're also a, a member of that same board. So I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat about that today too. And Lisa also lives in New York and Lisa, we're so delighted to have you on Sykes fields and silver linings today. Welcome so much to the show. Welcome Lisa.
1: Thank you Rowan, thank you Chris. I'm getting double pleasure from speaking with both of you today.
2: Terrific and and today it does involve talking about certainly what's about my favorite topic, synchronicity and that's something that we very much share that interest Lisa which will come through today. So we hadn't talked about a title today but I think it could be soaring with synchronicity. And I think that Absolutely.
1: will
0: become
2: evident later on. That would suit you as a title?
0: Absolutely. We are. We're a bit of a sucker for alliteration, Lisa. <laughs> so we often like to uh, have a bit of a match up there. And I reckon that works out very well.
2: <laughs> Glad to hear, Ron. Awesome. I might just start off mentioning how we met, Lisa, because it was a mini turning point for me when we met in feeling more confident of being able to talk about synchronicity and more spiritual issues because, From memory, we met at 2013 in Los Angeles at a conference of the International Positive Psychology Association. And at that conference, I thought, I'm going to go a little bit more out there with my interest in synchronicity. And it's a scientific conference, so I don't know how people might respond to that. Well, there was the first evening party, and I walked out to the pool deck, and you were the first person that I ran into. I thought, I'm going to try and be a bit bold. Early on in our conversation. I'm going to mention that, actually, while I'm here, I'm also going to spend more time in California. I'm writing a book on synchronicity. And then you immediately responded in a certain way that absolutely struck me. Do you remember how you responded with a particular story?
1: I sure do. And I am very kinesthetic, a very visual memory. And I remember when you said that on the deck, I remember that you coming over to me, And I said, synchronicity, that's one of the governing principles of my life. I am Jewish and I live my faith, but I'm humanist and love everyone. But synchronicity is like an internal GPS for me and it always shows up. And then we got more into it and you can keep going.
2: (laughs) Well, you told me a story about Uncle Ted. And I thought that was a remarkable story. And I think our listeners might be interested in that as well, because it says something about you and how you can experience the world in certain ways.
1: Great. Early one Thursday morning, I woke up with a start and I reached for the phone and I called my mom and I said, Mom, I need Aunt Sybil's phone number. When I was a child growing up in New Jersey, we called our parents, friends, aunt or uncle so-and-so. It was an honorific a sign of respect. Why do you want to call Aunt Sybil? I said, well, Uncle Ted, who had passed away just a few months earlier, came to me in a very vivid dream. And I want to tell Aunt Sybil, oh, what do you mean? Don't you think she's scared? I said, mom, I'm a grown up. I know what to say. Just give me her phone number. (laughs) So I call Aunt Sybil and I say, Aunt Sybil, it's Lisa, Janet, Charlie's daughter. I had this vivid dream and Uncle Ted was there and it was so positive. Would you like me to tell you about it? And I think that's important with synchronicity. We don't wanna clobber people over the head and scare them. We want it to be an invitation because my feeling is that I'm connected with this gift. I believe everyone has it, but it's a gift to share for good. It's not a cheap parlor game or something. So she was on board and I said, listen, here's the dream. I was standing next to the Stardust Diner, which is near the railroad tracks in the town where I grew up and where Aunt Sybil and Uncle Ted also lived, and I was standing next to a silver Cadillac, and the trunk of the Cadillac, which is quite large, was standing straight up in the air. I was holding a pillow with a baby, an infant on it, and I was standing there, and Uncle Ted was standing next to me, and he was... Larger than life. He was like those giant inflatables that wave cheerfully outside car dealerships, you know, swaying in the breeze. And he was wearing a white suit. He was glowing. I mean, rays of light were emanating from him. And he was clearly in a good place. At this point, Ansible starts crying and says, thank you, Lisa. You've always been so sensitive and special. And then she was going to call her three children and tell them about the dream. And that was the dream, or so I thought. I want to just state for our listeners that none of those symbols meant anything to me in that moment. Later that day, as I expected I would be getting a call, I got a call from Ann Sybil with some questions. When you said Uncle Ted was wearing a white suit, you meant like a dental coat because Uncle Ted was a dentist. His father was a dentist and he was my dentist. I said, no, no, no. It was a white suit like Tom Wolf was wearing in Bonfire of the Vanities in the back flap of his book. And that book was like the number one New York Times bestseller in the day. Uncle Ted looked really sharp. That was that. Then on Sunday afternoon, this is three days later, I get another call from Aunt Sybil. That's when she took my breath away. See, Sunday morning, her daughter, Lauren, they had a special religious ceremony for her baby son. Who was born a few months while uncle ted was still alive and in the jewish tradition we name after the deceased we don't name after the living but since uncle ted had passed away so suddenly and abruptly they wanted to somehow honor their father and the baby's grandfather so they got permission to add a second middle name so the baby's name was michael blah blah, blah edward in honor of ted edward so i didn't know that that was the baby on the pillow because when we have these ceremonies. The baby boy brought into a circumcision or the baby girl brought into a naming ceremony is carried on a pillow by a close relative or family member, family friend of the family. And then at the reception, Aunt Sybil, of course, was telling her friends about this dream You know, because she was feeling so bereft of hope. But this dream made her feel that Uncle Ted was close and hovering near them. And her best friends, Howie and Carol said to her, and they turned white, like as white as a ghost. And they said to her, Ted always said in life, when I die, I'm gonna be so thin that I'm gonna wear a white suit like Tom Wolf in Bonfire of the Vanities and I'm gonna look great. And then that took my breath away. And the silver Cadillac in the dream belonged to Ted's parents who were best friends with my father's my parents. So those two sets of parents were best friends. And cars always used to be black. You could have any color you want as long as it was black. But Maurice and Molly Pine got a silver Cadillac, which was like the cat's pajamas. And everyone in town would come over and like touch the car. And that was a silver Cadillac in the dream, which also I had no idea about. So um, that was our first encounter together, and we've been uh, deepening our synchronistic journey and friendship and collaboration ever since.
2: Those themes, the baby, the silver Cadillac, particularly the white suit, but also the impact for the family when you imparted that dream. A wonderful example of, I suppose, what Jung would call tapping into the collective unconscious but also how that can really help someone's well-being. But I'll just mention at a personal level, Lisa, if I was looking for some kind of receptivity or openness to having some, what I thought were quite unconventional views myself, then I got more than I bargained for. And ever (laughs) since then, we've been what I would refer to as spiritual friends. And it's wonderful to have a confidant and friends, people that you can tell stories to and find that acceptance. And I'll mention what struck me is at the conference dinner, the first group of people I went up to, there are a few women I mentioned as well soon on that I was writing a book on synchronicity. And one of the people in that group who had a PhD early on mentioned, I'm like a spirit medium. I can commune in some ways with the deceased. And I thought, this is pretty amazing that two people that I say about synchronicity responded with that. And this is a scientific conference. And as all become clear from our conversation today, people get a sense of some of your very mainstream and rigorous credentials and capacities there, Lisa. So one of the things we're looking to encourage through this podcast, as with our work in the coincidence project is for people to feel more comfortable to be able to acknowledge different stories that might seem somewhat mystical or hard to explain in rational ways, but they can be meaningful and helpful. So thank you very much for relating that story that meant so much to me.
1: Sure. Two things come to mind that when we're on our path, the path opens up, it becomes illuminated, as it were, and also authenticity. You know, like, why talk about the weather or gobbledygook? Like, you're like, I'm into synchronicities. Like, go for it. And and I can do small talk as good as the next one. I mean, I have to ask, like, the doorman, did the Yankees win last night or not? Because I don't follow baseball. So that hey, way my kids... small
2: talk to Rowan. He's yeah, a complete nah, that- sports nut. That's the real deal. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that way my kids can think I'm cool for, like, two minutes. But <laughs> I would much rather get to know, like, someone soul to soul. So... It was wonderful. And then about a year, maybe a year and a half later, I got this package with these beautiful stamps from Australia. And I'm like, Australia. And I opened it up and it was your book. And that was amazing because you talked about the encounter in it. But then I devoured your book cover to cover. And do you want to talk about the other story? Because I think that's really bookends. It's really exceptional. Fast forward, when I came to Melbourne, Melbourne, and I was walking into the conference center there. It's this gorgeous city, this amazing conference center. It's your hometown. And the first person I meet was, I hear Lisa, and I turn around. It's you. And that was sort of a very beautiful, uh, like a rainbow trajectory from LA to Melbourne with repeating that same powerful synchronistic connection.
2: Gets back to the human GPS, doesn't it? We're sort of like... Yeah. A- And we weren't surprised that we ran into each other straight off at that conference in that way, were we?
1: No, I call it a, I just wrote a blog post about it called the synchronicity of seating or encountering. I also love alliteration. And I tell some stories about going to a conference and just saying, put me in the right seat. And then boom, it happens, you know? So when you're open to being open, all the good things can happen.
0: Well, absolutely. And and this is certainly something that we do want to unpack a little bit more with you a little bit later in the conversation, Lisa, because I think there's so much that is wonderful in that story that we can unpack a little bit. But I suppose before we get there, I'd love to know a little bit more about Soaring Words, because like, I remember when dad told me about Soaring Words as an organization, like I thought, what a, a profoundly wonderful, I suppose, way of going
1: about things. And so, yeah, w- would you be able to explain a little bit about Soaring Words? So Soaring Words is a global movement that is designed to inspire children and families and adults of all ages to take active roles in their healing and to be able to explain to people there are simple things that you can do that can enhance your physical and emotional and mental well-being. That is really a gift because it taps into their resilience, their agency, their sense of self-efficacy. I can do something. I'm not just this victim. And in this time we're living in where there's so much civil unrest and racial unrest and gender disparity and a lot of things that have been come to the fore, it's just very empowering to tell people you can write the story of your life. You can have an active role in becoming more the hero or heroine of your life. So I was just inspired because I'm a visionary to create all the things that me and my family so desperately needed when there were three experiences with death and illness in our family that happened in a 10-month period. Certainly. And so my understanding is so soaring words is about, as
0: you say, writing your story. Is there an element to it as well of whether it be people who are unwell or maybe people who are sick and and maybe got a bit, not necessarily the, I suppose, best prognosis going forward in a medical sense, but those people writing their story and and also helping others write their own story in terms of becoming educators. Like there was such an element of, I think, validation that dad described in the the way that soaring words goes about what it does in terms of looking at people who might otherwise, you know, not be invited to write their story in previous times it actually, I suppose, leverages those perspectives in, in such a wonderful way.
1: Yes. So I came off of my these three experiences. I call it the trifecta of trauma that happened in my family. My only sibling and baby brother died suddenly of an asthma-induced heart attack. I got the call at four in the morning. Five weeks later, my daddy had the worst kind of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the worst stage And the doctors all told me and my mother, he's going to die. It's impossible for him to live, get his affairs in order. Did we mention he can't survive? And we're like, talk about taking away hope. (laughs) Well, my daddy lived for 19 years cancer-free. So that just uh, chew on that, everyone. (laughs) And then 10 months after Gary died, my oldest son became catastrophically ill with rheumatic fever. So he had heart damage and neurological damage, twitching and drooling, heavily medicated. And the way that I discovered soaring words was actually quite synchronistic. I was walking along the beach during the height of my son's illness, because when your child is ill, you need to be 24 seven emotionally present. And I was, and young children also want their mommy, no offense to dads or other caregivers, but it just was the natural course of events. So it was physically and emotionally pretty all in all hands on deck. So from five to six in the morning, I would tiptoe. The pediatric neurologist said, get out of the city. Now, New York City is an island surrounded by water, but there's no sandy beaches. He said, go be by the sea. That's gonna help your son heal. So we rented a little cottage 12 miles away at 30 minutes away and we lived there for four months. So I would tiptoe out of the cottage when my son was sleeping and I would walk along the beach crying my head off, singing my guts out all the songs from high school and college, the ballads, the prayers, tears everywhere, the ocean, the salt water, the seagulls. And that was my moment. And on one of these walks, the name and the feeling soaring words came to me from above. And I stopped in my tracks. And I had tingles everywhere. And I got it. I saw my whole life go in front of me, like this beautiful red tapeta ribbon. I saw all the children in the pediatric neurology waiting room, all the kids and families in the cardiology waiting room. No one was smiling. No one was looking up. No one was making eye contact. And I knew why I was born. You know, I knew that in a very humble way, I was put here to help them at that moment with all the things that we so desperately needed. You know, we got 15 Harry Potter books when it first came out. We got casseroles and phone calls, none of which I could really even return. Like, how can you return 30 or 40 phone calls every day, a couple of days when you're really tending to your child? But I knew that all the things that had really crushed me at the beginning, the thing about the book and the thing about Soaring Words is that I want to show people that we're actually much stronger than we could ever imagine. We have that inner resilience, and a big part of that is faith or that small, still voice, or it could be being open to being open by caring strangers or other people who come into our lives at the time when they can actually help us. Dr. Richard Tedeschi calls these people expert companions.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's a wonderful obviously program and the way that you describe that there it seems that there's so much to it that is so beneficial and like it reminds me of one time I I had the or the the privilege the real privilege of speaking to a number of inmates on death row in prison in America and it was so interesting because they had basically joined up a program with someone who was basically teaching them to write their stories and it struck me so much that you know in some ways like we'd sort of cast aside these people as society in some ways we'd locked them up and we said you know we're we're going to end your life and all this sort of stuff. But it was the way that they were taken through the process of writing their story and perceiving themselves as, you know, even someone worth writing their story. And, and they just came out with just this such profound, you know, whether it be poetry or just the way that they looked at things was so beautiful. And what struck me about that was it seems that there's many people, you know, sort of in different say parts of society. And I, I think potentially sick Certainly maybe kids, but people with a sickness are in this group of people where we say, Oh, you know, I'm I'm so sorry for your affliction. And it's almost like we look at people with a sense of victimhood, but what you described there and it seems what soaring words does is it really just empowers those people to sort of say, well, hold on, you know, you're so worth looking into your life in this way and writing about it. And, you know, obviously like we can all get so much out of that, but it it would just be so empowering for someone in that situation who I think is potentially getting messages from elsewhere, sort of saying you're struggling in a way or you're you're lesser for your health in a way. Like it's such an empowering, wonderful thing.
1: Yeah. And especially now we have heightened, attention and awareness that so many people are marginalized because of their socioeconomic status, their class, their race, where they live. There's just all these polarities going on, but, you know, there's that divine spark or that beautiful, creative, illuminated essence in each person from when we're born through our whole life and then continuing. So I feel that For all these people, I wanted them to know that I see them, I hear them. And something I did from the very get-go of Soaring Words, which people were like scratching their heads, I knew that kids were being sent to Disney World. I knew that kids were getting teddy bears and video games up the wazoo. But what I wanted to do, instead of give kids things, I wanted to invite children. And we pivoted and expanded our target audience to include Marginalized communities and seniors and people like that, you know, are really disadvantaged and don't have health equity. And we said to them today, you're invited to create an expressive arts and writing project, soaring superheroes, soaring gratitude letters. Like we've 100 activities. You're invited to do something kind for a hospitalized child in your local community. And everyone said yes. And people like, why are you asking these people? Give them stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. I want them to have dignity to, instead of having reification, where they just define themselves as someone that lives in public housing, or they just define themselves as someone who could never get it together because they didn't have the same resources as their siblings or other people. I was like, no, 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 what do you want to do? What's the best of you that you want to give to a child that's in the hospital? And that created a shift. And what I started seeing anecdotally and then hundreds of people and we grew it from two hospitals every week running all over town and inner city schools. We grew it to 196 hospital collaborations around the world. The data was always the same. People like today was the best day of my life because I never knew that I could help someone else or today was the best day of my life. I was like, that's so cute. It wasn't cute. No one ever told them that they had something worthy and, and wonderful to share. And when that switch was turned, instead of feeling isolated, bereft of hope less than, they were like, I'm funny. This is the funniest soaring joke ever. Or I'm so creative, look at my soaring superhero. And they lit up. And then when we brought it to the children in the hospital, we said to them, "You know, here's all these gifts for you, these quilts, these pillows, these messages, this artwork what do you want to do to pay it forward? So altruism is a very important element. I think when we're giving our synchronicity stories to people, when we're sharing our synchronicity stories, what's our intention? Do we want to be on a stage? Do we want to hog all the attention and take all the air out of the room and show people how exceptional we are? But people like Chris and myself, we're like, The reason we're on the board of this Coincidence Project is we want to invite people to tap into their inner wisdom, to their internal voices, their life experience, which is so valuable, and start talking about these things that are really interesting, that is everyone's gift to share with themselves, and then also to know who not to share with.
2: That's where I think it's such a wonderful, practical example with soaring words, how you tapped into that inner voice and how it was so transformative at a number of levels. At one level, transforming your own grief and the challenges that you are facing into such productive, creative activity. But when I heard how you got sick children, at times very sick children, being the trainers, using positive psychology strategies and that to help other sick kids i thought that wow that really is a game changer that really is transformative and now of course you were running soaring words for at least a decade before you came across positive psychology but then i was very interested how you encountered positive psychology and then how you incorporated it into your work, which was already very consistently going in that direction. But would you like to tell that story about how you encountered positive psychology?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, intuition, I think, is a sibling or first cousin to synchronicity. It's one of those things that's part of the constellation of our internal talents, aptitudes, invisible things that we can always tap into just like we're breathing right now. The blood is circulating right now, but we're not sitting there saying, breathe, breathe, you know, come on heart, pump, pump. It just happens. And intuitively um, I knew that by reaching out to children and inviting them to do this by reaching out to parents who were bereft of hope in the pediatric intensive care unit, for example, and saying today, you know, I'd walk in there, you know, I'm like, Hi, everyone, I'm Lisa, and today we're going to do a great activity for your baby. And they're like, you know, the baby didn't weigh like three pounds. And they're like, what? But, you know, no parent thinks that when they give birth to a child, they're going to be in the hospital for the next six to 12 months. They want to take that baby home and start, you know, living the fantasy or whatever, not sleeping for six to 12 months. But to say to those parents, we're going to make something really special for your baby you know, the tears flowed, the nurses, the attendants, but basically it's giving everyone that gift of connection of creativity. So I was in New York city and I, as you can see from my office, I love books. You know, I'll go to a bookstore. You could come find me three hours later. I'm still there. And I buy them because I like to hold them and mark them all up with a highlighter or a pen. I'm like a, a positive psychology wonk. You know, I'm very nerdy. I take copious notes, but that's what I do. That's my, that's my pleasure. Some people drink, some people do other things. I buy books and I love them. So I'm in Barnes and Noble to get some new inspirational books. and I'm going up the escalator and I look over and this book is flashing light. Now I can assure you and everyone who's watching that I am a very grounded person I'm a businesswoman and I'd never seen a book flashlight I was like wow that's so cool so I said silently to the book I see a baby I'm coming so I go up the escalator then I come down the escalator probably anyone was watching with me when you're in New York City like <laughs> you can't possibly be weird because there's always so many people that are doing more outrageous things than you that so I pick up the book and it's flourished by Dr. Martin Seligman And I said, I think I'm supposed to read you. Now here's where it gets really crazy. That weekend, there was a hurricane warning. Now this is back in 2011, before the global warming crisis, natural disaster climate stuff was happening every week, tragically. There was a hurricane warning in New York City and people were catastrophizing like I had never seen. What buildings are gonna crash, glass is going to impale people. I mean, it was really scary. And it was especially scary for me because my daddy was in a wheelchair because he had had five strokes in the last nine years of his life. But they had an emergency backup generator in their building. And I was like, he's going to be fine. They're going to be fine. So there was this hurricane warning. I'm holding the book. Jacob, my husband and I and our younger son were supposed to leave the next morning to go to Montreal for four day weekend. So we left a little earlier. I have the book. We're in Montreal. We're safe. And I start reading it. Well, I don't just read it. I devour it. I finish it in like less than 24 hours. And at dinner the next night, I say to Jacob and Josh, those were the people with me. I'm going back to Penn, my undergraduate alma mater. And I'm going to get a master's in positive psychology with this man, Dr. Martin Seldman. He's the founder of the field of positive psychology. They were like mid-bite. And they're like, what? you have a master's in business from Columbia, you work 50 hours a week. What are you talking about? I said, no, no, I've been called to the field. I read this book and he's talking to me. Everything I've done the last 11 years, all those things, they're based on positive psychology, but I didn't know it. And I'm gonna go back to school to learn all the science and all the language and all the, you know, how to do this so I can take this to the next level and scale it. And that's exactly what I did. I got in, Dr. James Powelski called me and started crying, oh my God, I've been accepted. But when I went there, I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world because I wanted to show them what I had been doing and I wanted them to share their life's work with the Soaring Words children and families and adults. And that's where I started. I've partnered with over 30 of them, the leading experts in the world, Dr. Angela Duckworth on grit and resilience, Dr. Chris Mackey on synchronicity, Dr. Tal Ben Chahar on optimism and Dr. Richard Tedeschi on post traumatic growth. And again, I knew that these people were flourishing even in the worst circumstances, but I didn't have the language for that because, like both of you and everyone listening, we've all heard of post traumatic stress disorder, but actually, 67% of people experience something called post traumatic growth, where they have heightened appreciation for relationships, a sense of awe and wonder realizing that they're stronger than they thought. So becoming a positive psychology practitioner was yet another step along this path for me becoming my best possible Lisa and for me living my life. And when those things happen, when those connections happen, like how we met or finding the book or having the calling, it's kind of like fireworks going off in the sky. It's so beautiful and shimmery. And I know to trust it because it's usually straight on, you know, it's usually just like breathing. It's so wonderful.
2: Another nice touch actually with connections is one of those people that you met, uh, certainly a wonderful teacher in the positive psychology field is Peggy Kern, who I believe was your supervisor. Now, a few weeks ago, our podcast episode was on a documentary film called How to Thrive. And I was a consultant psychologist on that film, which is a positive psychology documentary. It followed a program for people who had significant mental health problems. Well, Peggy was the evaluator for that program. So recently we had the premiere just a couple of weeks ago in Melbourne, the world premiere of that documentary. And of course, Peggy was there and I was there sitting next to each other. So you had that connection with Peggy uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, so this is uh, many years later, had that connection here. And that was just a few weeks ago on the podcast. So that's a nice little connection as well there. But I should say- Um,
1: Wait, wait, one more thing about Peggy Kern, because you know that we can't have a conversation with having the fireworks go off.
2: Yeah,
1: The first day of the MAP program, this woman comes up to me and she says, you know, yeah, hi, I'm Lisa, I'm Peggy. She goes, oh, I wanted to meet you. I said, you want to meet me? Because there's all these amazing people on the program. She goes, yeah, you're the one I wanted to meet. I said, why? Like, let's have lunch together. So we sit down for lunch. And she says, I've created the Epoch scales of adolescent well-being. And you're doing this thing, soaring words. She became my thesis advisor at lunch. And then we started working straight away and she created all the scales that that was in 2012 and now it's 10 years later we're still using her work she has such a foundational role in building soaring words to the next level and you know we just met I thought synchronistically that first day at that first meal so.
2: Yes, because it would be unusual for, again, someone going into a course and a supervisor to connect so quickly and so profoundly. And I can't help but uh, wonder whether that's partly because both of you are certainly people who tap into that inner voice.
0: Certainly. And well, it absolutely strikes me that from what you were saying there in terms of that idea of you well, practicing positive psychology for about 10 years. And then I suppose in, in many ways, a similar experience to many other people who they almost have this intuitive sense of positive psychology being a thing. And then they develop the language around it when they hear people like say Martin Seligman's work and that sort of thing. So I suppose, what was that like for you after discovering positive psychology as a existing field of psychology How did you then change, I suppose, soaring words in terms of the practice? Because you would have already been, I suppose, dabbling in positive psychology for lack of a better term. It was, you know, fundamentally a positive psychology program, but still discovering all these world experts and people like Martin Seligman, I imagine it still would have, I suppose, changed it to even become potentially even more positive psychology focused.
1: Yeah, and also more just grounded in, my internal wisdom and i don't mean that with hubris or ego like i knew because by 2012 i had personally spent time with thousands of children thousands of healthcare professionals and from the trifecta of trauma in my family when you're a visionary you don't look over your shoulder like oh what does everyone else do i'm going to do the same thing you are creating something that there was a void or vacuum so it was very affirming because I met people like Barbara Fredrickson that talks about micro moments of positivity and that happiness is not a trait, it's a state and it comes and it goes, which is very helpful when people are going through the bottom of their life, you know, the worst possible situations and challenges to let them understand that that's what everyone goes through. But when they're looking at the outsides of everyone else's life, they're like, my life is over it's never going to be good again. And so being able to learn the science underneath that, so it's not happyology, like just buy a red balloon and you'll be happy. Like those kind of pop psychology things really get my blood boiling because people sell millions of books and people buy those books. And then when they do those things that have no gravitas or no validity to them and they don't work or they don't, work sustainably, then the person feels even more broken or something's wrong with me. So what my positive psychology journey did was meeting these people, showing them what I had done, asking them to be a part of it. It's like when you play tennis or another sport, like if you play with people who are better than you or strong players, then you're going to get better. And to be able to like work with Dr. Dan Tomasulo, who You know, wrote this beautiful book about hopefulness and gratitude and to be able to work with people like Jane Dutton, high quality connections. You know, I was just building out my repertoire and creating more content for the people I was serving and just always being open to not just sitting back and eating bonbons and saying, oh, you know, I'm done. I did it all. So when COVID hit, I pivoted because I was not going to be working with any corporations and any companies with employee engagement and employee volunteer programs, but I had met someone with that seeding synchronicity. I went to a conference. I sat down at a table and I was like, oh gosh, this is like everyone works at the same company except me. I'm like at an internal staff meeting. This sucks. You know, and they're like talking about work and talking like their to-do list. I'm like, hey guys, we're at a conference. Like, let's talk about why we're here, cause marketing. And, but you know, they, they were really nice people and everyone's introducing myself. So there's one empty seat next to me. Someone sits down, the conference organizers come over and say, no, 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 you're at the speaker table. Someone else sits down, they see someone, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm gonna sit with them. They're my friend. And I was like, I showered this morning, but then the director of the Department of Health and Human Services sits down. By the end of the day, she hired me to do a major contract for the city of Jersey City, which has 270,000 residents. And we worked with them for several years. And the World Economic Forum picked this project to be the pilot for mental health and well-being for the World Economic Forum Healthy Cities launch globally. So that's that seeding synchronicity. That's like meeting Peggy Kern because it just happened. I didn't have to work so hard and we've all been in situations where someone's trying so hard and working so hard it's actually rather off-putting if I can rely on the synchronicity to say hello to people and just be genuinely authentically loving and nice that radiates and then there's this energy exchange and it's a wonderful way to go through life because it's never boring
2: Yes, people sometimes use the term, the universe provides, and there are many ways of uh, putting that, but you sitting next to that person that leading on to that more extended mental health program, a wonderful example. And I really like your description of also with your studies at Penn, using that to add to being even further grounded, because I think often people might consider that if someone has very strong intuitive, or I would even use the term psychic ability, people might think, oh, that means that the person's somewhat flaky or using unreliable ways of going about things. But in that project that you did with Penn and doing a master's in positive psychology, you work with Peggy Kern with evaluation, you're subjecting yourself to science and you're also exploring the science of well-being and the latest research on that. So I think that's a good example. It's not an either or if we look at our intuitive understanding or look to listen to that small voice, it doesn't mean that we're rejecting rational thinking. And in your case, you've certainly gone that much further into it. And, um, I'd like to add as well that your book, Soaring into Strength, is a wonderful way of conveying the story of soaring words and how you develop that. And to me, it's a wonderful example of that transformation of grief and pain into something very constructive and worthwhile. And so we will have a link to your website about Soaring into Strength but also it'd be interesting to hear at least a summary of some of the feedback that you've received so far from a very recently released book, I think just in the last month or so. And uh, yeah, what is some of the feedback that you've received, Lisa?
1: Well, I've been talking for 22 years, <laughs> you know, giving inspirational talks and so on. And then those stories got woven together into the book. And the thing about the book is, is that being the sibling Of a child who was catastrophically ill as a young boy. My brother had serious asthma. And this was a time before the internet, before cell phones. So when we would walk off to school in the morning, that was kind of scary for my mom because, you know, she would, she had to leave the house if, if the school nurse called, you know, she was not reachable, you know, running, doing errands, doing whatever she was doing. So And my brother's childhood name was Asthma spaz, because the bullies would like wait in the bushes to like beat him up. So I grew up with this empathy and this understanding that, you know, I was his protector, his second mom, but that people have a lot of suffering in their life. And you never know, you know, Mother Teresa said, you know, be kind to everyone because you never know if they're fighting a harder battle than yourself. And then after the things happened with me, I was really clear about many things. And one of them was, I was not going to have my life be defined by loss and grief. I was not going to have people when I walked into a room, stop talking because they were talking about their brother or their sister or their nieces and their nephews. And I didn't have that. I said, no, no, I want to hear about your brother and your sister and your nieces and your nephews. I went to those weddings. I went to those occasions. I went to those birthday parties because Just because my brother died, that didn't mean my life was going to stop. And because I had this passion project and this calling, I've been able to bring Gary along with me for the whole ride. And I think it's really the purpose of the book is to remind people that strength and greatness resides inside of each one of us. And it's at the core of our being, regardless of the circumstances that are going on in our life. When times are great, yay, it's great, it's great, I'm great. And when we're at the bottom of the bottom, it's so easy to lose touch with this inner repository of strength and light when things are bleak. And I wanted to be very authentic talking about these childhood experiences. And, you know, there's one chapter where, you know, I... The bullies are beating the hell out of my brother, and I jump on them. And then the next day, it was just much, much worse for Gary. Like that really backfired. And growing up, our parents tried to shelter us, but until you realize you can't really protect anyone from life. So, by being really honest with some other not so great things that happened to me or my family, I want people to see that our vulnerability is our strength. And I really, bared a lot of things in the book but with humor and poignancy and and the number one thing that people say is I laughed and I cried like in every chapter and it just it read so quickly I was like skipping through your life and there's so many wonderful people that I bring into the story that were part of the journey they're ordinary people that are extraordinary like they're real it's not a fictional book And people say it's really touched them. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotations from the Mishnah, which says that words from the heart enter the heart. And I hope that my stories of transformation will fill people up when their lives are going really well and when they're on top of the world and when they're not doing so well. And frankly, these last couple of years during the pandemic, a lot of people, you know, the incidents of Isolation and loneliness is really spiked to a a global pandemic level. It's an epidemic. And I feel that my book would be like sitting with them with a nice cup of coffee or cup of tea. And just, I want them to know and love me because I know and love them and I'm sending them strength and love. When I first started working, you know, my husband's like, you know, why do you sign things in such a personal way? It's like, because that's who I am. And I think that people need that because if they can feel that spark, then they can feel that love for themselves and they can start radiating that love, whether it's for a puppy or themselves or their neighbors or strangers. So it creates this self-fulfilling cycle where there's just creates more goodness and more love and more positive energy.
2: One thing I think you've done so well, too, is uh, people listening to this podcast will get a sense of your clarity and your passion. As you've emphasized a number of times, what's important to you is also authenticity. I think you did a brilliant job of that voice coming through in your your book as well. There are also some remarkable stories that come through in the book, Lisa, and just maybe a couple might ask you to describe briefly. One was, and again, I like the way you have brief chapters that people can pick up a, a story or a theme. And one of them was called Big Sister Radar Goes on High Alert. Would you tell us about that?
1: Sure. So my parents had gone away for Labor Day holiday weekend, and my husband and I were in their backyard in suburban New Jersey. That's where they lived at the time with our little, our young son, Jonathan. He was, you know, in a little kiddie pool splashing around. We were there and it was camp grandma and grandpa. So we were there and my husband was taking a nap on the lawn chair and I was, you know, playing with the baby and all of a sudden I jumped up. I mean, lightning like coursed through my body and the words were go to him now. And my brother was going through a rocky time in an ill-fated marriage that didn't last more than a few months. And I said, go to him now. What are you like, God, like, what are you doing here? Like, it was horrific. And. You know, when Jacob woke up, I told him that it was like, go to him now. And often these messages, when they go through you that way, they really hit the mark. So the next morning, nine o'clock, because it was a holiday weekend, when I was back in the city, I called his secretary and she's like, he's not here. And there's these letters for you and your parents and for me. And I'm like, letters? What do you mean? She goes, well, I read mine. and And I said, read me the letter you want me to open your letter? I was like, yes. So she opens it up and she reads me a suicide letter. And I was like, Patty, I'm going to hang up now because I have to call the police in Florida. You are forbidden from calling my parents or answering the phone until I call you back. So that intuition, that synchronistic message, you know, we had such a bond. We were best friends. We were fellow entrepreneurs. It came through loud and clear. So fortunately, I had to call my parents and tell them we had to throw things in suitcases and meet in the airport. And we found him and he did not go through with it. He was rescued. He went on to, you know, stop drinking and get clean and sober and the marriage dissolved. And he lived in a really great place until he had that asthma induced heart attack. But the point was that Sometimes physical distance means nothing when you are really connected to your internal knowingness or to other people. It was sort of on a much, much less dramatic scale. I remember walking home from middle school. We didn't have cell phones then, hard to believe. I know for people who are younger than a certain age, but I put a quarter in a payphone next to a Chinese restaurant on my walk home from school and said, mom, what's happening with dad? highly unusual behavior and she said well, how do you know and he had been an offender bender very benign you know another car hit his car but i knew something was wrong with my father so it's there for us if people can stop multitasking and just get in touch with it little signals and the fun kind of games you can play to start strengthening this muscle is when the phone rings you could say i wonder who that is And then as you develop it more and more, like I have about 70% accuracy of that, but if I'm really doing it seriously and not just, if I'm really concentrating, it's like 99%. So it's just interesting or knowing when a meeting's going to happen and then saying that's strange. I didn't think that was going to happen. And then sure enough, the person calls like an hour before saying, I'm awfully sorry, but something came up. It's like, oh that's fine. When do you want to reschedule? But like I knew. So it, it's, it's always there for you. It's a tool. It's a resource. How
2: profound that can be, that sense of connection across distance, especially with someone that you have a degree of bond with or an emotional connection with. And that came across quite strikingly in another chapter called Soaring Cardinals, a connection with your dad who'd passed on.
1: So when my father was getting towards the end of his life, he had had five strokes in nine years, I got an intuitive message that said, I was going to be my father's death doula. And when I make up my mind to do something, that's it's pretty much done. Many years earlier, my best friend and chosen brother had died suddenly. And he sent out an email saying, I've been given six months to live From my doctors but i've sat on this email for the past five months and that night my younger son said to me mommy don't worry you're going to be able to see uncle paul before he dies and i was able to be there when i spoke to him the next morning to say when can i come can i see you he said come in three weeks and i'm thinking three weeks oh my gosh will he be there and my little son said to me you'll be there don't worry and that was the weekend that paul passed so, I had this experience of spending thirty six hours literally bedside, not leaving, you know back practically not sleeping. So that was the opposite of Gary's death, where you get the call at four in the morning, woken from a deep sleep, to being able to really escort someone on their way. And I called that a death doula. A doula traditionally is a woman who cares for a new mother, taking her through the process. And you know the mommy is caring for the baby, but the doula is just caring for the mother. So I felt that in a very respectful way, my mother and father who had been so loving to me and Gary throughout our childhood and adulthood, that this was to make a small gesture to be able to escort my father on his way in the most loving, spiritual and expansive way possible. So there I was in my parents' apartment My mother was sleeping in the guest room. I was sleeping next to the hospital bed and I got this message. Dad, when you die, you're going to come to me as a red cardinal. That's how that's exactly. It's like a sign on a ticker tape. That's how I get these messages frequently. And I'm thinking that's so odd. He's a cardinal, a red cardinal. I'm Jewish. A red cardinal, that's like at the Pope and the the Vatican. What's, What's this red cardinal thing? And red cardinal is also redundant. I mean, the female cardinals are brownish, but red cardinal just, again, when it goes like, pay attention, a red cardinal seemed redundant, which meant that I should pay attention to that message. Well, sure enough, a few months after daddy's death, I'm driving to the Whole Being Institute's Well-Being Summit. I was invited to give a lecture on soaring into imagery. And it's a four-hour drive from New York City. And as I pull into the parking lot, the tears just come. Like, they're just flying. And I'm thinking, how am I going to be an inspirational speaker? How am I going to be a teacher when I'm so bereft of hope? Like, this was my maiden voyage back into teaching and being there leading a workshop. I see something fluttering from the side of my very far peripheral vision, put the car in park, and I didn't need to turn around, but I did. And there in the snow, sitting on a tree stump, touching the car practically was a red cardinal. I had never seen a red cardinal in the wild. I had no relationship to this bird, but I can assure you that I've seen hundreds of them in the last six years. And I always see them at the precise moment when I need them. And that's the beauty to show people that, you know, physically, when people we know or love are no longer here with us, there's so many other ways that we can continue to be connected to them, to be connected to our inner knowingness and to be connected to positive memories and and just take it all in and drink it all in and, and use that to become our best future self.
2: A wonderful example, Lisa, and I'll just very briefly mention a little other touch of synchronicity. You mentioned how you were going in to do a presentation, a workshop at the Whole Being Institute, which I believe was set up by Tal Ben-Shahar, a positive psychology leader. Well, he And
1: Megan McDonough. Okay,
2: right, yes. So I I knew of that as being through uh, Tal Ben-Shahar because he came to uh, Geelong to set up a certificate in positive psychology that only ran for one year. And Sue, my wife and Rowan's mother, was one of the students at that SIP course run by Tal Ben Shahar of the Whole Being Institute. So again, coming from Pennsylvania through to, was that Pennsylvania or was another state of America? Was that Pennsylvania as well?
1: This workshop was held at the Kripalu Institute in Massachusetts.
2: Okay, but so this American program coming just to Geelong of all the places in Australia. So that's where Sue did a SIP course in positive psychology, Amazing. but yeah.
1: I called Tal Ben-Shahar and I was so excited because we were going to Israel and he's Israeli. And I was like, Tal, I'm, I'm coming to Israel to see you. And he's like, I'm in New Jersey. I live in the States. So that was funny too. <laughs>
0: he's a great guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There um, There's such wonderful stories that you mentioned there, Lisa. And oh, look, I must admit, oh, I've had a similar experience to yours with the red cardigan. Uh, Cardinal, sorry, uh, and myself in the constellation Orion. In terms of, uh, you know, I've had a, a friend who's passed and that's represented him to me. And it's amazing the, oh, I suppose, spooky times at, at which, you know, the the constellation Orion will be there. And, you know, living in a city and there's a lot of light pollution around, you don't always get to see Orion. So it's uh, it's, it's a very spooky thing when it does come. But I was fascinated the way that you described that in terms of this sense of knowing, and you know, you and dad both talk about this inner sense of knowing and oh, it struck me recently. Like I heard something about how we have, many different types of knowing for example you know you can know that whether it is at the moment that's a very different type of knowing to for example playing the piano which is also a very different type of knowing to recalling a memory and thinking you know that was something that happened on this day which is again you know a very different type of knowing to for example an identity within myself that I know you know who I am and who I'm not like we have all these different types of of knowing in a way and it strikes me with for example, the coincidence project that, that both yourself and Dad are involved with and, and on the board of, that it seems to me that part of it is cultivating this extra sense of knowing in terms of maybe it's an intuitive level of knowing that that you obviously have a, a great relationship with your intuition. But I wonder if you could maybe speak about the coincidence project that that you're on and, and that Dad is too, because it seems to me a big part of that is this maybe in a sense of knowing or it's this kind of extrasensory knowing that may not necessarily fit a kind of rational model but at the same time like the way that you describe that like there is a sense of of knowing it's a i suppose it's a, you know it's the world speaking to you in a way and you're getting kind of information from somewhere else that potentially yeah isn't there so yeah could you speak to that and and i suppose
1: firstly is that maybe part of the coincidence project as well absolutely First of all, I want to say that I love Orion's Belt. It's one of my favorite constellations. And when I was a little girl, my father took us in the backyard and taught us how to recognize them. And living in New York City, there's a lot of light pollution. But when we moved away during the height of my son's illness, the first thing we did that first night, we put a blanket in the back and we'd lie down on the blanket with our two young sons and we looked at all the stars and I was teaching them to find them. And that's the one I always look for first. So I'm starting to develop some synchronistic connections with you, Rowan, my new friend.
0: (laughs) We'll have to to cave in touch and uh, I'm sure there'll be many more.
1: (laughs) Yes. So in terms of the board of the Coincidence Project, Chris invited me. He's like, you know, you should come to this thing I'm doing and check it out. You'd be wonderful for it. And I think you'd enjoy it. You might enjoy it. And, you know, understated, humble, but always (laughs) Spot on, always spot on. So because my personal mission, just me, Lisa, not the title and the organization, is to be a source of light and love for family and friends and strangers. So when I heard about this opportunity, I was really excited because I think that it's a blessing to be in touch with your synchronicity, with coincidence and spiritual encounters because they're important, they're real and they're valid but also just makes going through life like it's technicolor to live in a sense of what Jonathan Haidt talks about awe and wonder. These moments that take our breath away, you know, it's nice to chop vegetables and make lunch for people and, you know, do laundry, but it's really nice when you have these moments of awe and wonder, and that's what synchronicity and intuition can give us, those beautiful little connections. So, I think that the internal wisdom and things that are invisible are just as valid as things that are seen. And I think that living in a first world Western consumer culture, you know, people are obsessed with airbrushing their Instagram photos and buying more and having more and labels and all that stuff. And that stuffs, you know, I'd like to stay in a nice hotel as much as the next person, but... At the end of the day, at the end of my life, that's not what I'm going to remember. Like, wow, the soap in that hotel was really great. You know, the bathrobe was so plush. So when I was invited to become part of the board of the Coincidence Project and share this in a really grounded, accessible way, I was really delighted because, you know, that's a way to bring people into this larger conversation. And just recently, the Templeton Foundation on Spirituality, is noting that the numbers are shifting, the penetration levels are growing so that like almost 50% of people have admitted to having a kind of encounter like I had with Uncle Ted or admitted to having an inner knowingness, something's wrong or something's right. And then it came to fruition. So I think it's just about giving people an opportunity to know about it in a non-didactic way. Like, hey, we're just sharing stories here. The third Thursday of every month, we get together in this Coincidence Project. It's a cafe and people come from all over the world. It's very cool. And people like Chris, who's like a rock star, it's like one in the morning and he shows up and we share stories. And when you hear other people's stories, as we were talking about earlier, positive narrative, it kind of makes you think, hmm. What stories do I have like that? Or what were times in my life when I was led to something and it turned out to be wonderful? What are stories in my life that perhaps I was guided to something I'd never thought about? And it actually ended up being such a great thing that that happened. So for me to be able to encourage people to trust to go in and to do that in a loving, kind, fun way. It's never boring. And that also is making me much more um, of a coincidence, a high frequency coincidencer. So since I uh, actually read Chris's book, just the day after I started reading your book, I had these vivid dreams. And our first conversation was a really good one. Our first conversations after we had met, I said to you, I had this vivid dream about a bullseye And it was red. It was flowers on the side of a hill, white flowers, and then red flowers in the middle. And then the next day, I read that chapter, that story in your book about the bullseye and about the arrow. And then the next time I walked out of my building in New York City, there's these big brass arrows, like from a quiver, on the doors of my building. So when you're open to being open, that's when all the magic can appear. And it's really fun and wonderful and never boring.
2: And it's delightful how you express that and how it can deepen our own inner experience. And also it could be fun and again, wondrous and inspire awe, but also you convey very well how it can help our connections with other people. And so talk about connections with other people. Somehow you're finding the role to be the president-elect of the health and well-being division of the international positive psychology association i don't know how you're going to find the time and you've conveyed a lot that you're on about very well today lisa but any other comments about something that you hope to contribute through that role
1: sure so they called me up i wasn't on that committee and they asked me to be the president i said sure and i think it's a great opportunity for me for my career but it's also it's just taking my Lisa philosophy and the soaring words philosophy that when we come together, we're stronger than we could possibly be individually. So I wanted to be part of this community of thought leaders to learn the latest science and to learn the latest topics, but also to be in partnership with them as an equal. I'm never going to get a PhD because I'm not going to devote seven years of my life to doing that. And it's a little embarrassing, but when I started the master's program, I said to Peggy that first time, well, I think I'll get my PhD because of course they're gonna count the 50 hours a week I'm working at Soaring Words towards the credits. And she said, "Uh, no, it doesn't work that way, my dear. (laughs) But when you appreciate that millions of people are suffering in silence or isolation, and that when we come together, to talk about things like gratitude and resilience or laughter, the healing power of laughter, a sense of agency. We're giving people the keys to having a more meaningful, purposeful life. And when people feel that sense of self-efficacy that I can be the hero, or heroine in my life, or at least I don't have to be a victim anymore. That's when they can start to experience greater physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Because One of the top reasons that people suffer is that they're thinking that things shouldn't be the way they are instead of saying, I have to accept that things are the way they are. I don't have to like it, but if I can just look at what's really happening and then figure out a way to have some self-acceptance and what can I do to make it less painful? What can I do to make it more joyful? What can I do to enhance the situation? That's when people start feeling better. And the first video I ever made for Soaring Words said in it, some will live, you know, each year, 18% of children in North America suffer from chronic or serious illness. Some will live and some will die, but they all can heal. I got such pushback. I got people with their hands on their hips saying, What do you mean they can heal? They're not a doctor, they're a child. Or what do you mean some will live, some will die? How can you say that? And I said to the head of a school, I was doing a program with hundreds of little bitty kids, everyone in the first grade and kindergarten knows that the 18 month old child that was a sibling to these two children died. What do you think I'm doing by saying in this two minute video, some will live and some will die and they all can heal. Because all the kids know that. Everyone knows these things. They feel it. They sense it. When someone walks into a room and they're disingenuous, when they're like trying to pull a fast one, you know it, you feel it. So they let me show the video. And then I said to the children, who wants to do something really fun today? And they all raise their hands because they're not afraid. They're not afraid of showing that they care. They're not, they haven't learned how to just, you know, talk to people who look like you or act like you. So I think with the International Positive Psychology Association, Health and Wellbeing Division, there's an opportunity to let the healthcare professionals be more connected as the compassionate human beings that they are and learn about things like positive narrative. You know, when you come into the room, talk to the patient, touch their shoulder, look them in the eye, teaching people how to get the kind of healthcare that they deserve. And then also just what I'm all about is I want to know who you are as a person. Like you're on my show because you've got a great title and you're a positive psychology rock star. The title of my international positive psychology association podcast is thought provoking conversations with positive psychology thought leaders say that 10 times fast. So we already know that they're like really accomplished, but I want to know these micro moments of, Positivity, I wanna know what were the like the turning points in your life, what was the synchronicity? Because those are the things that aren't in their professional CV. And that's what turns me on, that's what lights me up. And I think if we can bring more of those conversations into this scientific field that is still is very much in its infancy or toddlerhood, then we're gonna encourage more people to come forward to us. I don't know many people, if you asked hundred people, do you want to read this 50 page white paper article um, that has uh, 180 citations? Most people would say "Um, maybe tomorrow, but not today, or they'd be very intimidated by that. I have great respect for the academic rigor. That's just not how I'm going to be promoting the practice because I want to meet people where they are in not in academia, but in in the real world. and And I really want to go to marginalized communities. That's what I've been doing, partnering with health and human service agencies, because those people, you know they need it the most. and And it's like giving them a drink of cold water. They are being nourished. They are taking it back to their families and in their communities. And they are making the changes that they deserve to have because everyone deserves to live the best possible life
2: they can. You described that very well, Lisa. And look, I'll mention as well, I don't have a PhD or a doctorate, so I'm actually a a mister rather than a doctor. And I think that your example also shows that people can really contribute to a scientific field as well, without necessarily having to follow a more mainstream academic path to the nth degree. And I'm reminded that Bernie Bightman, who's the leader of the Coincidence Project, he describes himself as a recovered academic. So there are some things about our mainstream education that can sometimes lead people a little bit away from that intuitive awareness because of an overemphasis on, if you like, logic or rationality.
1: Yeah, I'm really grateful that I discovered positive psychology when I did and that I went and did the work and did the due diligence and wrote the thesis because it gives me a legitimacy to show people that these fluffy art projects and these warm and fuzzy things that I was doing, again, yeah, you can think they're warm and fuzzy, you can poo-poo them. But I know, because I've spoken to the, you know, intensive care unit staff, I've spoken to the parents, I have thousands and thousands of testimonials from more than 500,000 people who've been touched by the Soaring Words programs that said, this was the first time that my loved ones sat up in two weeks. This was the first time I saw them smile. So I knew that it was working, but it's nice to have the science to wrap around it and the vocabulary so that people could try it on in their lives and they could bring it to whatever their, you know, missions and their work is, you know, we're seeing now in coaching and education in all walks of life that people are using these universal, simple tools to affect positive change. So it's a great time to be alive. It's definitely needed, all the things that we're talking about today. People need to know that there's goodness and hope and strength and that it's not all gloom and doom, which the media likes to show.
2: And wonderful to follow that through with rigor as you do.
0: Well, certainly in... Yeah, like as you described that, Lisa, I suppose one thing that comes to mind is it's my understanding as well that Ipa, the International uh, Positive Psychology Association, has a, a spirituality division as well, and and so it's it's striking to me that you're invited to I suppose be part of say like the well-being, which you know you would necessarily I suppose traditionally associate with spirituality in a, in a, a more rational way of looking at it. I suppose it suggests that there's an acknowledgement of, of further integration needed in terms of say some of the well-being side of things, but also the spiritual side of things too. So I think you're a you're a very good person Person for that role it seems lisa
1: i was shocked and thrilled when they implemented a spirituality uh, division because what's old is new and what's new is not really new at all so if i go back to the major faith traditions and you know go back thousands of years all these newfangled things like meditation and breathing and eating whole foods instead of fake foods those aren't new, Those are that's how people live for centuries. Dan Tomasulo and Ryan Nemec, who head up the spirituality division, are two giants in the field. And it's nice, again, that people are kind of letting down their guard and talking about the things that are important, talking about the things that are meaningful and that will enhance people's lives. So it, it was wonderful to see that. And I'm glad that it was leading the way, you know, by really embracing those things.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think the the way that you have such an appreciation for those two sort of fields and, and the integration between them, I, I think you'd be a very good person to potentially even ask some more broader questions about synchronicity, Lisa, because there's a couple of elements of, of synchronicity that, you know, potentially it's, you know, I'm, I'm, a younger bloke than dad obviously but i suppose you know i'm, I'm going maybe on, on my own journey with, with some elements of synchronicity and there's some things that i suppose in the past I've, I've tried to get my head around and wrestle with a little bit at times and dad we've had these conversations too but i'd love to get your perspective lisa because you know i was speaking about before about that say uh constellation orion like i remember a, a situation where as i said it was sort of to me, that was associated with a friend of mine who passed away and we used to skateboard together. And I'm a horrible skateboarder, least. I don't do much of it these days. But there was one time, and it was probably about 18 months after he, he passed away, and, and I went skateboarding with a couple of friends, and, and the constellation Orion was right there, basically above us. And it sort of it was the first time I'd noticed it in quite a while, and it was this numinous experience. But I suppose after that, and potentially, you know, some years after that I would then go through a period where I wouldn't have maybe an experience like that and I potentially felt a little bit discouraged in that situation that to me I wondered if it maybe alluded to a lack of connection or whatever it is I was you know potentially overthinking it a bit a little at the time Lisa but I wonder what your view is on how I suppose do you maybe come to terms with periods where you don't experience as much synchronicity and whether that's maybe a little bit discouraging at all and and maybe how to deal with that discouragement.
1: Well, first of all, what's your friend's name? So Drew,
0: Drew is, yeah.
1: So I think that everything about that story is so powerful and beautiful because basically the constellations, as I understand them, were used as a way for sailors and people who were going on long journeys to navigate and not get lost and come back. So, what you're talking about is in these periods when we, you know, like, you know, yeah, like Uncle Ted came to me and the Cardinal and the Blue Jay for Gary because he had blue eyes. But then when you're in a, a dry spell, it's like, did I lose my mojo? Am I done? And I'm reminded of this expression that I just recently learned from Dr. Julie Heislip, who's a brilliant doctor and educator and a leader in the field of appreciative inquiry, which is how we ask questions and how we think about the things that happen to us prime us. We could be like, when your friend died, that must have been terrible. Like, how did you get over it? Or I could ask a different question, which is, Rowan, when Drew passed away, was there ever a time, maybe when you're brushing your teeth or skateboarding with your friends, like this beautiful story you just shared, where you felt a connection, where you felt all of those great memories, all of that love just radiating down from the heavens to you? So the way I asked those two questions, night and day, totally different. And what Julie Heislip said is you can't pour from an empty cup. I was doing a workshop with her and Dr. Isaac Proletinsky on soaring into mattering. It's like you can't pour from an empty cup. So I would say to people that just dip your toe into the synchronicity stream. Don't expect to like wake up the next day and master it and just be open to being open At the end of the day, you could jot down a few moments that maybe you felt something. You you were going to the supermarket and you ran into someone that you hadn't seen in several years, but there he was, or those kinds of things that a lot of people talk about. And then just start with that. And don't put these expectations on yourself that you're supposed to have a PhD in synchronicity five minutes after you've learned about the field. And the other thing is that, There's no right or wrong way to do this. And what I found is when I'm at the bottom of the bottom, that's the time when I need to fill up my cup. That's the time when I need to take long walks in nature, take warm baths, get some extra sleep more than I normally get even, and be really loving and nurturing to myself. And it's when I do that, when I'm away from the should, could, have to, busy, multitask, numb my pain, just don't want to think about it, just be so busy I can't feel any of my feelings. That's when the cardinal comes, or that's when the butterfly aligns on my shoulder. And that's when the magic happens. And the gift of COVID was feeling all of my feelings, not just the happy, positive ones. That's when I realized that the positive ones are more accentuated when I feel them again, because I felt what it felt like to be bereft of those feelings. So your story is so beautiful because you had this pinnacle moment guided by a star that meant so much to you, from someone who meant so much to you, so that when you don't have that connection, that awe-inspiring moment, you feel like, what's up? But then when it comes back again, it's even more powerful, and until before my brother died, I had pretty good life. I mean, things happened to me, as you will read about in the book, but you know, it was pretty good. And then only when I had my heart ripped out did I realize when I laughed again and had joy again, what a gift that is.
0: Certainly, and I, I think it's yeah potentially something as well. I think when I go through those periods, maybe a bit of a dry spell, as you describe, and you have that maybe experience that. You know, I suppose snaps you out of that for lack of a better term. Often I can look back and you think, you know, I potentially distracted myself a little bit there. Like, you know, I've been maybe on TikTok a little bit too much lately or on Twitter, or on these social medias that aren't quite as profound as the things that we're talking about today, Lisa. But, Oh, look, it's it's been just absolutely wonderful to speak to you about all of this stuff. And I've really gotten a lot out of it personally. I'm sure all of our listeners will too. But yeah, if I could just almost leave one final thought in terms of maybe some things that I've been thinking about, certainly knowing that we're going to have a bit of a chat to you today, but I think it's further crystallized for me discussing these things with you because like I heard recently... A podcast which was talking about shamanism. And it was very interesting. It was talking about the way that if you look back at these cultures that included shamans, which for you know many tens of thousands of years of human history, there was this element of whether it be a witch doctor or a shaman. And it seems to me that whether it be, you know, shamans that way of thinking, I think also potentially people who maybe self-medicate a little bit these days, I think potentially there's an element of escapism that comes with it. But this other aspect is a attempt to gain further insight from an altered state of consciousness in some way. And like, for example, we hear, I think research with psilocybin around say things like depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, that seems to go really well. And I wonder if part of that is being able to cultivate this different sense of reality in a way. And it strikes me that one thing with synchronicity with all the, the stories that you've spoken about today in some ways it's a altered state of consciousness it's something that strikes us whether it be the book on the shelf that was flashing it turns out to be martin seligman's book it's a different experience of of reality in a way that allows us to gain further insight in a way and you know in some ways these are complicated and and difficult notions but it seems to me that the way that you describe it it's a a very accessible, practical guide where, you know, it's it's not, you know, waiting for this super profound, empowering experience. There's actually a relationship that you can have with synchronicity and and spirituality that leads up right to, I suppose, that really extreme end of the spectrum where you have these paradigm changing events. But I, I suppose it's, yeah, I've gotten a lot out of I suppose, noticing some more practical ways of going about whether it be looking at things through a certain frame or angle. And and so I thank you very much for that, Lisa, because yeah, I have very much enjoyed it and got a lot out of it today.
1: Thank you so much. It was wonderful to spend time with both of you. And I'm sending you and everyone who's watching today strength and love. And I can't wait to see you again.
2: And thank you so much, Lisa. I feel very fortunate to have you as a friend and a colleague and as a spiritual friend. Thank you for today.
1: Thank you.